Welcome to Old School, New School, a podcast in which we reverse engineer success stories through the lens of education. I'm Noah Waspy, and I'm here with Tracy Gates, principal of Claren Academy in Vancouver, BC. Tracy, today I talked, well, Rob talked to me, I, would, I should probably say, but I talked to Rob Perigoodoff about all kinds of things, but one, that jumped out, one thing that jumped out at me was the way his teachers tried to start doing individualized education. And they did some things that I thought were interesting and some things where maybe I would do it differently. But it reminded me of the way we do math and reading here at Clarence Academy. Could you talk a little bit about how we're trying to individualize education here? Sure. I think that um, there are pros and cons to, to doing what we do, for sure. But I, I think we've made the decision to group kids um, for reading and math for really specific reasons and we're finding a lot of success with children. So what we do is we assess the children's reading and math levels in September um, and we spend a lot of time doing it because there are individual assessments that really drill down on their strengths and their challenges and what they know and what they need to um, explore. And then based on those assessments, we put them into groups so that they can be at their just right level. So it's the, the groups require some scheduling um, gymnastics because everybody has to be doing reading and math at the same time to facilitate this. So I, I know it's not a fit for every school, but it's really important to us that kids get the instruction that they need, they get the attention that they need, and that they are able to move at their own pace. And that is really difficult to do in a classroom a typical classroom where you have an um, absolutely huge range of skills and abilities. And we want to make sure that kids are not frustrated because something is too hard. And we want to make something, uh, want to make sure that the kids are not bored because it's too easy. And um, I personally have, you know, tried to do that in a classroom where I was the only teacher. And it's, it's possible, but it's really challenging. And um, because we are a small school and because we are independent, we are able to move things around to help support the teacher in making that happen, who can therefore help support the child in making sure that they're, they're in their just right spot. Yeah, in Teachers College, we learn about Lev Vygotsky's zone of proximal development, which to people who aren't teachers is, uh, is it within that range of things that you could learn? It's not something you've already learned and it's not too far out of the possibilities for you. The thing I've noticed about these our reading and math groups is even there's still differentiation that occurs. Like, not everyone is exactly the same in terms of what they know and bring to the table, but it makes it a lot easier to make sure everyone's getting something that's in that zone of just the right amount of challenging. Yeah, and that zone of proximal development is really key, not just from an academic perspective, but from a motivation perspective. All of us as human beings, we operate at our best when we're feeling challenged, but not frustrated. If we are dumped into a situation where the content or the, the skill, whether it's academic or sports or social emotional environment where we feel overwhelmed and we just have this feeling of helplessness because it's just too hard and there's no scaffolding, we, we just shut down. And the same goes when we're in a situation where things are just too easy. I refuse to play volleyball on a team where nobody else can play because it's just frustrating, which yeah. me or it's boring to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I don't want kids to feel like anything is too boring or uh, because it's too easy or it's it's too frustrating because it's too hard, then they shut down. 
Yeah, and this kind of grouping, I know that it's, in some circles, it's controversial because people are worried about how kids would feel. And if anyone is curious about how we manage that, they should reach out to us through the email in the show notes. Now, let's get to our conversation with Rob Paragoodoff, who is an instructional um, consultant. And our conversation is super interesting. I think you're going to like it. I didn't have class. Uh, I studied on my own. We went into the testing center. I took a quiz, and if I passed it, I moved on. And there were about eight of us or nine of us in this in this cohort. So it was like the very early days of individualized so the learning. So pre- there's the pre-assessment that happens, and how did that go? Well, it's, it was good. Yeah, it went well. the 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 uh, The model itself was functional. Mm-hmm. Um, very crude, of course. Uh, but but it it we were independent. I could go through the material at as fast or as slow as I wanted. I was able to. I finished the course probably with six weeks to go in the rest of the term. So I really enjoyed my spring and summer. Yeah. So was it an independent was it an independent study, or was there like a a book like a curriculum that you worked through? Was there a facilitator? There was a person we could ask questions to, mm-hmm. um, but only if we needed to. Otherwise, we were on our own doing our work, uh, and then we could go in. And it, it, there, there was no automated feedback of the formative work. It was mm-hmm. just the summative. But if we went in and passed the summative, then we moved on. So do you feel like it – obviously, it was a nice experience because you got to finish early and then yep. have some time, right? You didn't have to get held up yeah. by waiting for the professor to lecture this thing or waiting exactly. for other kids to get something or having to catch up to kids, right? You got to yeah. do – but do you feel like it stretched you and uh, that you like in terms of what you took away from it that you could use somewhere else? Oh, a hundred percent. And it was mainly ownership. It was just that notion that I could take ownership of my own successes or failures. Yeah. Uh, because so much of the rest of the system, I, I was either bored or uh, held back because I, we, I knew the teacher, you know, fundamentally the industrial model of education is, is, uh, has to cater to the lowest common denominator and, mm-hmm. and the largest group, which I get, uh, but very frustrating. Yeah. And also like, uh, Yang Zhao, one of the guys, I'm sure you know him on our, on our board. One of the things that he's talked about is we come into school with like this wide array of skills and possibilities. And then with that industrial model, it shoehorns you into the things that uh, industrial age schools wanted you to come away with instead of focusing on your potential, right? Yeah, wanted to come away with or just or just they didn't have the infrastructure or the ability to navigate and manage yeah, uh, all of these things. Yeah, it's not to say it's schools making uh, a school is making a conscious decision. It's just like this yeah. system, a paradigm, right? Yeah. So, all right, so that, was in co- that program was in first High school. Year? Uh, it was in high school? It was in grade 10. Yeah, it was grade 10 math. <laughs> was this like a progressive experimental class, or was this the way the school did things? Oh, no, it was very progressive and experimental. It was a particular teacher that wanted to run this. Uh, so w- the school itself had no regular public high school in Calgary. Uh, it was just the particular, the math department decided to experiment with uh, individualized uh, testing and so progression. Did, when you, with your interaction... How much interaction did you have with the teacher in that? 
Uh, I'd say I'd probably each, each unit. There'd always be one question that I didn't get. You know, mm -hmm. I was I was a solid A, like sort of ninety percent student. I could do the majority of it on my own, and then there was mm -hmm. stuff that I just that that one question or those two questions that were meant to be challenging. Uh, those I would ask occasionally and have to ask for an explanation, but otherwise they didn't see much of me. What was the teacher like? Um, uh, the teacher was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, teacher was really good. The, the, uh, the best part about the teacher was their ability to understand that they actually needed to let us flounder for those of us that needed to flounder. Yeah. They had to resist that urge to, to intercede and, and uh, try to um, bring the students up to a particular level for fear that if they didn't, it would look poorly back on them. Um, and that's a whole topic of conversation that we can have about that. You <laughs> know, sure I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in in uh, failure is the best uh, educator. Yeah, like and we uh, don't do enough of that. Oh, for sure. Like uh, that Ken Robinson quote. I think something like, "I you can't really achieve anything original if you're afraid of failing," or something yeah, like that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so with, but it's also a balancing act because you don't want to make someone, there's like a point of diminishing returns with failure, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where it gets, you feel like you're too far outside of like your zone of proximal development yep. and it makes you shut down instead of propelling yep. you forward. Or, and then uh, the individual mindsets that have to do with things too, I imagine. Yeah, I'd probably, uh, I'd, I'd actually probably switch gears and tell you a, a teaching story that I think is is relevant in it. And it's, it, it, but the specifics to your point is, that as an educator, you may have 25 or 30 in the classroom, and and so that that risk of letting an individual student go too far out of that proximal development zone is very real, simply mm -hmm. because they're not paying attention. I, I'd argue it happens anyway. Um, <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the story I'd like to share was actually my eureka moment when I was in the Middle East. I was teaching in Dubai, uh, and uh, Ramadan crept in. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had never, I had no idea what Ramadan was. Um, I'm a redneck kid from Alberta. Um, <laughs> what I didn't understand, I understood the sunrise to sunset, no consumption of anything. Mm -hmm. um, but what I didn't realize is that as soon as the, the sun sets, the gun goes off, it's New Year's Eve every night. So the, my, the, the, the young men that I was teaching, I was teaching at the Dubai Men's College, they would go out to the desert and celebrate and, and eat and feast and, and be merry and then come into my classroom and sleep because, of course, they've been up all night yeah. and they haven't been eating or <laughs> drinking anything. So WebCT, this, this platform that allowed me to put work online, and they could do it at 3 a.m. while I was sleeping. That was a real eureka moment for me. I was able to keep progress moving. Um, that's not actually the story. The second story and what I'd like to share is in my own teaching, um, I was teaching calculus at the time, and uh, pre-calc and calc, and what I realized was I could individualize instruction. Okay, what does that mean? Well, anytime I'd start a new unit, integrations, the very first class, and I had anywhere between 15 and 20 students in the class, so numbers were impactful. But I would do a typical university lecture. I would power through the entire unit mm. and make, make notes, just this is what you need to know. And of the 15 to 20 students, five or six of them would look at me and go, hmm, yeah, I get it. And I would say, okay, there's some work on that WebCT thing. If you guys go and do that work and you do it successfully, you don't need to come back to class tomorrow. <laughs> so then the next class, 
I would teach a master class. I would do the manipulatives. I would do the stories. I would do the analogies. I would do all those things that I'd learned in my, in my education degree to help to uh, uh, bring the subject to life. And what would happen is there would be another sort of 10 students in that group who now they would get it over, say, two or three classes. They would understand the, ma the main objectives. And of course, they're very incentivized because they see their buddies sitting outside, not in class. Mm -hmm. So they're like, well, I want to be out there too. And that would go on for three or four classes, which would then, and this is the real crux to it, what would happen is now I'm left in the room in the class with the five or six students who needed me. They needed me to go individually and talk to them and scaffold them into whatever the content was, try to find where they were. Uh, and of course, I had the ability to do that because there were 15 people who had already demonstrated mastery. They were doing the work, they were handing the stuff in, and I didn't need to administer and manage them in the room. That was my eureka moment. Yeah, so like in addition to giving kids what they need, not wasting certain people's time, it's shrinking your class size so you can remediate where needed, right? Yeah. You can target instruction. So how long did the, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but with your with the direct instruction piece, that was just like the first day? Yeah. Yeah, I'd literally teach the entire unit in the first day, just like a university class. And then you'd have some kind of pre-assessment, and then yep. the next day it's hands-on and then remediation. So how, I can see this, like, if this is a dream come true for any high school student, no matter where they fell on the spectrum, and, right? And so to clarify, these were college, so they oh, were they were eight, 18 Sorry. to 22. <laughs> so I had some latitude in that sense. Gotcha. But it was just that notion, which I built on from my high school time, of I can be in, in if, uh, that notion of independent learning, independent progress. Yeah. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but have, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you've thought of this. Um, what are some ways where you could see teachers adapting a model like this to uh, a K-12 classroom where, you know, you can't send kids home, but yeah. there are certain things that you can have yeah. kids doing, right? Yeah, and I've, I, you know, I ha I've had the luxury of teaching, right, grade one, right up through to, to second year university. So I understand those challenges. Um, and it, 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 it's, for me, it's making the... So you know, I, I have to. I want to be somewhat careful with my language here, but but most educators and administrators and people in the system very much just focus on the shiny side of the apple. They mm -hmm. they the, and I'm using the apple in the classical metaphorical sense. Um, I learned early on, and just by by nature of my character and personality, to think more on the pragmatic side. Mm -hmm. So I think about the administration of, I think about the, the mechanics and the logistics of, and in the analog world, it is very difficult to provide that type of individualized instruction. In mm -hmm. fact, it's, it's completely overwhelming as an educator. You can try, but, but you will burn out very quickly. <laughs> It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of preparation. It's a lot of, and, and full circle, full and cycle spinning stuff. spinning the plates. And spinning the plates. <laughs> in the digital world, it's a completely different paradigm mm -hmm. uh, because now, A, you can have systems that have checks and balances by which it's not you that's managing those checks and balances. It's the system that's managing the checks and balances. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not you that needs to 
follow the, the markers. It's the students who can see them themselves. It's the parents that can see them themselves. But it's very difficult for a lot of educators because it means giving up some control. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go in two directions with this. Kay. One, I want to just kind of dig into the origin story of what you've just talked about. And I know that you've probably mentioned it a little bit with this high school class. Yeah. Um, but I also am interested in going into this future of education, of differentiating instruction. Yeah. Um, so I want to put the differentiating, I want to put a pin in that for just a second because I can't, I can't uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. Would, was the origin of this thinking about education, like with, the, mm. with respect to individualizing, mm. did that all just happen for you in that high school class, or was it more no. of a process? Yeah, so I think quickly, uh, uh, education was a was a very welcoming and safe place for me. That's that's a it was it was not home. So I was good at athletics. I was good at academics. School mm -hmm. was a great place for me to be. Yeah, that's why I became a teacher. That's why I mm -hmm. got into education. I think the more relevant is when I actually became a teacher, and I'm a, a to use probably n not relevant language anymore, but it it. <laughs> It fits for the story. I'm an abstract random. Mm -hmm. I'm, and, and so I was a square peg in a round hole when it came to my classical education program. When I was doing my practicums, when I was taking my courses, of course, everything needed to be, what's your lesson plan? What are your learning objectives? What are the students going to be doing? And they, and they really expected us to stay up until 1 o'clock every night planning. Uh, I didn't do that. That's not me. I'm very much more walk into the class. I want to be, A, I want to be present. I want to have a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. B, I want to be agile in terms of how the class goes. I don't know what these 25 kids walking in, what the day is going to hold for us. So I have definitely goals. There are things that I knew that we needed to cover, but I wanted to be much more fluid, much more organic in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And that was where I decided to put my professional energy. And, and so I'm the classic wacky professor. Uh, <laughs> the students learn quickly that I, if, if they ask the right question, I could go off on a story tangent very quickly. Oh, and, sure. and, um, but that was, so, so that's probably that origin story of, of it's just my own uh, teaching style, my own learning style. Um, no, people, people don't um, try to do something progressive if they think things are already perfect. Mm. In addition to your own teaching style and uh, maybe um, planning style, I guess, way of thinking mm. about teaching, yep. in addition to that, was there something that you felt was missing? Uh, yeah, entrepreneurial thinking, uh, entrepreneurial spirit. That's, that's a, a key pillar in my career has been the notion of educational entrepreneurship, and, and we need to get into more of that across all kinds of spectrums. And in some part, it's back to that comment about uh, do we allow students to fail? Uh, because entrepreneurship, by its nature, mm -hmm. um, you have to iterate. And, and uh, working through failure, working through the challenges is a key part to it. So when, you talk, when you're talking about educational entrepreneurship, can you say more about what you mean by that? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really hard one because <laughs> um, fundamentally, um, as and, and I don't know what teacher programs are like now, so mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume they're Me not either. too far. <laughs> I'm going to assume they're not too far from what I experienced, but sure. uh, there is still that notion of control. 
Uh, And I simplify it to the learning objective. When we were taught, there was the learning objective. And the learning objective begins with the student's will. Now, if you're going to write a statement that says the student's will, blah, 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 implied in that is that you know what the students are going to do. And you are the person who's going to direct that. Uh, through this new paradigm and what the internet, the technology, AI, all these good things that are coming in now, mm-hmm. has just blown that up. And we as educators are very, very uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the notion that, oh my God, I may not know what the students will do. and Or and, what they're doing and what or something what, else was doing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and what makes it very uncomfortable for us is that we get judged by what they do. Mm-hmm. And of course, failure is not an option. You, know, you can't, you, you, uh, another key tenet in my teaching practice was that I will never fail a student. Mm-hmm. The students will only fail themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place to be, though, because like I come from the states where uh, it, testing is just on steroids there. And it's all about like teachers are constantly faced with mm. failure and not in a healthy way, right? Yeah. Like we're always looking at the data and the deficiencies in our students' pretest results yeah. so that we can intervene instead of trying to build up students to what their potential might be. Yeah. What I'm hearing you talk about is I think it's so important like the whole analog thing problem with education like students will do this, here's point A, here's point B. Uh, if point B is great, like a really important skill, that's amazing. But it's the same problem that we can have if we give students a rubric for an assignment. I'm not anti-rubric per se, but once you give students a rubric, like here's what a four looks like, yeah. that is that puts a boundary on what success can be. It, it, yeah. it puts a ceiling on what success can be. Um, and it's nice to have a floor, it's nice to have a structure, but what if someone could have done more than a four? Yep. It doesn't allow for that. And I think that analog model doesn't allow, like, students will do this, but yep. what if they could have done more? Yeah. And what if they're nowhere near that? How can we get them closer? Yeah. No, it doesn't allow for any of that. Yeah. So I think that what you're talking about, like, I can see how where we're going with the AI parts of the conversation can help with that. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you want to jump down the rabbit hole of, of assessment, that's a that's a that's a that's my particular professional passion. All right, so but. I want to get into. Let's go ahead and get into it then. Um, future of individualized instruction is that probably where we're going? Well, um, I, so for me, when you say individualized instruction, I I simplify the educational process to 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 a circle with two halves of the circle, and instruction is the dissemination of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, there's the 95% of the world is focused on that side of the equation. I'm very much more on the assessment side of the equation Mm. because I think this is where things are really, really difficult for us Uh, because at the end of the day, people want grades. The system is designed to give grades. Mm -hmm. Now, here's where I'm going to do a detour because uh, even from the university, when my my past 14 years at UBC uh, at the business school, the discussion right now is predominantly being overwhelmed by the humanities and science folks because they're the biggest faculties. And everyone's talking about ungrading. Everyone's talking about, you know, humanistic, and there's all kinds of good things there. Mm -hmm. Professional programs can't do that. I don't want an engineer who feels good about himself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I agree. Like, some of the 
ungrade I think it can be taken in a really bad direction because one of the most like any study that you look at when they're ranking the top five ten in things that impact education is feedback yeah like you can't yeah. you can't grow if you're not getting the feedback that you need to grow yeah yeah so so now let me give you my my uh, if the crux of where I am right now and that is through we started doing digital assessments in 2011. Um, and that's a that's a there's a lot there to to share, but I'll get right to the point. And the point is that our current education system in the in the assessment game is based on product. We will grade students on what they give us, um, and that's a wide. Obviously, it's a huge spectrum. What we now need to transition to is process. And in the analog game, we would have never been able to monitor students' process. Good meaning people will try, give me, hand it in, I'll give you feedback, let's get this back and forth. But in the analog game, it's very difficult. The digital game, it's, what's, it's, what's weird, it's what the game is designed for. So AI now is gonna force us into many, and, and uh, this is a business phrase, but we can unpack it. We have to have many more transactions between the student and the educator to give that feedback, to allow for deviation, mm -hmm. to allow for expansion of any kind, um, and de-emphasizing the product that they give us and focus more on the process. Yeah. I just read a, a book about uh, infusing AI in the classroom. And by AI, I think she just meant specifically large language model. Yep. Not some of the deeper learning kinds of th deep learning kinds of things. It when we we're living in a world where all the products can be made, right? Exactly. So is that the that, is that the point of it? That, this is the point. You can't you can't judge product. Uh, that's just it, that the entire uh, house of cards has fallen apart in that in that space. Yeah, there's no need for human made products <laughs> in terms of at least with uh, some of the things that we're seeing like OpenAI doing, right? Um, we never thought that. Like, I think we always thought that uh, automation would only take over the uh, strength, the things that you need physical strength for. I don't think we, in, uh, teachers in yeah. general, I mean, uh, ever anticipated that automation would uh, be able to handle some of the soft skill-based things or the humanity-based things. Yeah. Do you see that? Is that something that you see happening? Totally. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a phrase that I'm. I'm now. It's in my lexicon firmly. Uh, don't say soft skills. Don't. Don't. Uh, durable skills. So the critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration. That's been my world for 14 years at the business school of us trying to implement, but incredibly challenging to uh, to make reliable and valid using those in the classical statistical sense of if we are going to assess these students on their group work, if we're going to assess them on their critical thinking, how do we actually do that? And it's extremely challenging, but it is where we need to go because uh, a quick story if I can, I had the opportunity um, to present to about a room full of 50 CIOs and CEOs. The con the, um, uh, it's a conference of uh, chief executive officers and chief information officers. It was hosted here in Vancouver. And the organizer happened to be a professor at Sauter. They, hey, would you come down and talk about business education? So this was probably 2013, Vancouver Club. Um, 
and I was happy to share what we were doing, but I, I took the opportunity to, to bring in clickers, audience response. That was still fairly early on in the game. So I said to them, hey, just by way of a quick poll, what do you think is the most important characteristic that you want to see of a solder graduate this when they grad? So I had put up um, um, problem solving, uh, group work, uh, knowledge of subject, uh, critical thinking, so on. Uh, guess how many chose knowledge of subject? Zero. No one. They all said to me, now we don't care what you teach them now in university. If you can just give them the other things, we'll teach them what they really need to know once they come to our, our corporation. And that was a eureka moment for me. Yeah, because I mean, how much of the knowledge that you learn in school is going to directly apply to a job that you were partially um, partially qualified for based off of your degree, think about, right? Think about learning to be an accountant these days. Uh, and uh, uh, to pick, pick your, your subject, it, it is going to change so rapidly. Oh, yeah. But the durable skills that hopefully we can give our children uh, uh, the ability to change, structure for change, and, and uh, that's the key because so, their world is going to change so fast. So what are some of the skills that you see students needing to come out of K-12 with? Like going, what do you see students uh, going uh, to college with? Uh, so resiliency is mm -hmm. probably the biggest one that, that I'd put at the top of the hat. I'm, I'm grouping down below communication, critical thinking, problem solving, that, that standard. I think what we really need, and, and this comes back to that entrepreneurial notion of, of getting comfortable with failure. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we're not doing these kids any favors whatsoever if we enable them to always look for the second chance or the back door or the fudge factor or <laughs> no, we, we need them to learn to, to uh, um, be persistent. What do you think is the role of the teacher in a future focused or an entrepreneurial focused school? S uh, it, besides parents, the teacher needs to be the safest relationship that these children can have. Mm -hmm. They need to be that that is such a critical development relationship where they can be it's quote unquote a safe space across many spectrums and and not not so much anymore uh, i'm an expert in mathematics mm -hmm. or i'm an expert in science or i'm an expert in yeah there's a there's a saying and it was backed by like a survey that john hattie an educational researcher did uh he he it was just a basic survey. I don't know how scientific the survey was. But he said he surveyed 1,000 people who had been successful on some level. Yep. And he asked, like, what role did uh, school play? And every single person, it was one of two answers. I don't know if it was every single person, if he was exaggerating. But it, he said mm -hmm. it was one of two answers. It was either they saw a potential in me that I realized I could go with. Yeah. Or they believed in me, and that gave me the uh, fuel yep. to shoot me into the stratosphere. Yep. Nowhere did he say that uh, they taught me the best math <laughs> or <laughs> they explained how limiting reagents work in chemistry <laughs> solved all my problems. It was, it was yeah. never content yeah. to your point. So yeah. I may, that's, I was, I suspected there was something like that that you were thinking about. And that was why I was asking about the teacher in your original high school program. Mm. Um, because it seemed, like you can assign stuff and let kids take their own path. Yeah. But that also doesn't account for the kids that could do this work but won't for this reason or that reason. Yeah. Do you, 
did you see anything like that happening in that program, or do you think that that was something missing? Uh, I, I, I didn't, and that was simply because there was a lot of selection bias. We were a hand-picked group mm. in the, our first cohort. Uh, 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 the entire group was all uh, quite adept at, at doing math on them. So there was there was behavioral issues mm -hmm. that were separate from the academic issues. Um, I would assume, yeah, we would see more of that as the program has grown. So were there any, uh, we've talked about some positive experiences, were there any uh, experiences where the school, school didn't do something that you wish it had? Um, the school... Didn't do something. Yeah, well, you know, I, it's, that's a tough one. I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. Um, Maybe I can load the chamber a little bit. Like, for, for me, when I was in school, I had some negative experiences that had a positive impact on me. Like, mm -hmm. I had a chip on my shoulder because I thought I was really good at writing and really creative, but none of my teachers saw that because it was all five-paragraph essays. Right. And I was, and that, that really propelled me to be even more creative, to be a little bit subversive at times. Yeah. And those, that creative and that subversive nature ended up coming in really handy when I was trying to plan lessons that would engage kids instead of, we're doing the five paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of the thing I'm looking for, not just like, did a teacher abuse you? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I didn't. Yeah, thankfully, knock on wood, I never, never had any of that. I think it's probably, I'd probably say that I wish the system had been able to give me greater guidance. And I, I, I say that in the sense that I was like an, I was a, a, a solid A minus student, mm -hmm. um, didn't have any significant issues. And I think the system just sort of let me cruise through it. Mm -hmm. They had, other, they had bigger fish to fry. Which is great, and that's that's what I want to be careful. I don't want to say that's a criticism, mm -hmm. but but there's this entire engine and paradigm that has to handle a lot of numbers and a lot of individuals, and and there were a lot of other kids that needed the system's attention and the system's focus. Um, so that's probably the only one that I would honestly say was, yeah, I wish that I had been given. And and I look now like. It's not that I regret getting into education or becoming a teacher because it's been fantastic, mm -hmm. um, but I do wish that I had seen other opportunities. I, mm -hmm. I come I, just as a sidebar. I often say, if I if I had a do over, I would have been become an economist. Yeah, that that that's I've realized really? now that's where my actual the the combination of the mathematics, sociology, anthropology, psychology, would have really fascinated me, especially in my travels around the world. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I got into education to travel. To be perfectly honest, I wanted to uh, get paid to to travel, and that's what I did. I went overseas and taught many different places. So, hence the wish for more entrepreneurial stuff in schools, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. That's right. So. I guess let's just do one more question. Okay. Uh, so right now you do some interesting consulting work with, with schools um, and with business. Is it uh, education, I guess? Yeah, yeah, still in the education sector, and it's really around uh, how to solve this tough nut that, that all schools, especially professional programs, mm -hmm. are how do they assess and, and provide a reliable and valid credential. Uh, how do they say, yes, this nurse who's going off to be a practitioner is actually qualified to do the job, or the engineer, or the business person, the finance person? 
Um, yeah, so I'm very much on the professional side of the, of the equation and try to help educators navigate these new waters. I hope that didn't count as my question because I wanted to ask about how you got into doing this kind of work and was there a, mo a moment in school that either nudged you in that direction or made you realize that this was something that you wanted, wanted to do? So it, it was actually in Africa, it was in Swaziland that I was, when, when the internet, 1995, a bunch, a new batch of volunteers came over talking all about this World Wide Web thing. We mm -hmm. had, I had heard of it, but it, I missed it. I, I, was in a, I was in a mud hut with no electricity or running water uh, when this thing happened. So what I realized was that and I actually spent some time when I finished my, my uh, so I did it like a World University service, like Peace Corps, Canadian Peace Corps is a mm -hmm. good description. Oh, cool. When I finished it, I ended up working for a computer company in, uh, out of South Africa, but in, in Baban, the capital, and was selling to educators. And I could see they were like, like just goldfish. They had no clue what they were buying. They had no clue what they what they were going to do with it. Mm -hmm. And I realized rather than being on the the corporate side of this equation, I wanted to be on that side of the desk talking back. Uh, I wanted to be an an educator who could speak to the computer geeks. I understood all of the systems, and I wanted to be that bridge. Um, and that's sort of that's how it that's how it I got into it. Full circle. Full circle. Rob, thank you so much for doing this with us today. I really appreciate it. It's <laughs> very enjoyable. Old School, New School is brought to you by Claren Academy. Founded with a focus on the future, Claren Academy is devoted to education for a changing world. The music that you heard at the beginning of this episode is by me, Noah Waspy, and the incidental music you heard throughout is by Sam Clark. I want to give a big thanks to Tracy Gates for her thoughtful comments at the beginning of this episode and her insights, and I want to thank you for listening to Old School, New School.